In chapter 10, Mark details the last journey before Jesus goes to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified. In the first verse, we see Jesus and his disciples leaving Capernaum, and they enter Judea, taking the road going up to Jerusalem. Along the way, Jesus teaches his disciples. This will be one of his last opportunities to teach them. And he uses the travels experience as his opportunities to teach, kind of real-life parables. A challenge by the Pharisees turns into a lesson on divorce. The disciples keep trying to keep people from bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. That becomes a lesson on entering the kingdom of God. A discussion with a rich young man presents an opportunity to talk further about who will enter the kingdom of God. A request by two of his disciples, James and John, turns into a lesson on serving others. Sandwiched by these teachings are the verses that we just read, verses 32 to 34, where Jesus talks about what will happen to him, the Son of Man, in Jerusalem, his death, and three days after that, his resurrection. This is the third time that Jesus talks about his death in Mark's Gospel, and it is the most detailed explanation of the three talks of what Jesus will face in Jerusalem. This is central and a key passage to Mark's Gospel and to the Christian faith. It is the reason Jesus is here, his death as a sacrifice for our sins, his resurrection showing victory over death and our hope and assurance of eternal life. Chapter 10 closes out in verse 46 with Jesus healing a blind man, Bartimaeus, further proving to everyone that he is the Son of God. I'm going to do something that I was taught not to do in seminary, and that is preach a sermon based on the entire chapter. The idea was that there's just too much in one chapter to cover. We were taught that a sermon should cover a section of around 7 to 10 verses or so. But the organization of chapter 10, I think, lends itself very well to a sermon presented as a broad overview. As I noted in my introduction, it is a wonderfully structured chapter. If you look at the other Gospels, Mark leaves out a lot of teaching that the other writers include. We don't hear about Jesus' exhortation on forgiveness. We don't hear the story of the Good Samaritan or several other confrontations with the Pharisees. Instead, Mark continues with the action and urgency of Jesus' ministry, using this journey to give further insight and understanding about Jesus. There's a natural flow to the stories in chapter 10, and a general teaching that connects these several vignettes together. One of the purposes is to teach who can and how one can enter God's kingdom. I have three focuses. The first covers Jesus' teachings or new understandings. Second, our theme for this service, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Third, I will look at Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? A really interesting question for the Son of God to ask twice. In a number of Pastor Tracy's sermons, and Chris alluded to this already, Pastor Tracy talked about Jesus' kingdom and teaching and preaching as being upside down. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God is not like the world. Many things the world values, thinks, and believes is turned upside down by Jesus. 
The world's kingdom is often the opposite of what the kingdom of God will be like and is all about. We see this right away in verse 2 as Jesus begins his trip to Jerusalem. He is confronted by the Pharisees when they challenge him about divorce. Since we covered the topic of divorce earlier in a Sunday school class this past fall, I'm not going to cover this now, but I want to point out that Jesus here teaches a new teaching, one that is different from what the religious laws were saying and for how people used those laws. So let's move to verse 13. This is where we begin to get an understanding of those who will be a part of God's kingdom. And it is different than the way the world might see it. Again, it is a new teaching and a new understanding. People are bringing their children to Jesus so he can bless them. But the disciples rebuke them for doing this. It's interesting because the Greek word is actually stronger than that. It can also mean admonish or forbid. Maybe the disciples thought that small children were too young for this kind of attention. Or maybe they were concerned that Jesus was too busy and more, had more important work to do than to bless children. Either way, I think it shows the marginalized nature of children in biblical times. One biblical historian writes this, quote, Infants and small children were a marginalized subgroup. In a culture dominated by powerful adult men, they were not powerful, not adult, and not men. They held the lowest social status in a first-century Mediterranean family in every area that was valued, considered ignorant, capricious, in need of education and strict discipline, they were considered the least in all of society and were completely at the mercy of the adults who took responsibility for them. Jewish parents did not play or laugh with their children. Their focus was on discipline and education. Children were expected to obey their parents without question. But Jesus turned this thinking upside down, not only calling the children to him, but also by saying, to such belongs the kingdom of God. This would not have been the obvious or expected answer as to who belonged to the, to the kingdom of God. Rather, the thinking was that it would have been somebody like the religious leaders. They were the perceived righteous. They were the ones who were both good and religious. They followed the religious laws and they made it well known they did so by saying the right things and by teaching the law. Surely they were the obvious ones who belonged to the kingdom of God. Jesus saying that you had to receive the kingdom of God like a child or you would not enter it just didn't make sense. It was also believed that the rich or the powerful were the ones who would enter the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life. After all, they were the blessed. God had blessed them with wealth and with riches. We see this in the disciples' response to Jesus' exchange with the rich young man. The rich young man kept all the commandments. He was good. God had blessed him. He was rich. But when asked to sell everything he had to give to the poor in order to have treasure in heaven, he could not do so. Jesus responded, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This shocked the disciples. This man was good. He was rich. Therefore, blessed by God and surely a prime candidate for God's kingdom. But instead, Jesus turned this thinking upside down 
teaching a new understanding of who would enter the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life. It is those who are open to accepting God rather than those who rely on their own works, their own deeds, or their status. It belongs to those who put their faith and trust in Him, in Jesus, like a child, in humility, open to hearing Jesus' teaching and relying on Him. Therefore, the kingdom can belong and is open to the marginalized, the unclean, and anyone who follows Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Jesus closes the real-life parable lesson on the rich young man by telling his disciples, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. This new teaching of Jesus is still new to us today. For we are drawn to wealth, power, and wanting to emulate and or be like the beautiful and the ones who in terms of worldly standards seem to have it all, the winners. We are easily drawn into this and can be driven by it. This can happen when we put our energy and time into something like getting that promotion, or when all we think about is getting perfect grades, being the best on a sports team, having the first seat in the orchestra or a choir, or making sure our kids do. A great example of this occurred at a Stonehill Church staff retreat. In planning the retreat, Marianne Jones and I split the staff up into teams of two, and we played a number of games, including park carpet ball, ping pong, and cornhole. The teams were awarded points for winning the games. As you would think for a Stonehill Church staff retreat, the purpose was bonding, relationship building, and Christian fun while imitating Christ. One of the pairs had a particularly boisterous person on the team. This person will remain nameless. And they began to get super over-enthusiastic about competing and winning. This became particularly evident when this team was playing ping pong and you could hear Pastor Tracy, oh, oh sorry about that. <laughs> well, you probably guessed that anyway. Pastor Tracy yelling out a loud cheer every time they won a point. This often was followed by trash talk, which of course was Christian in nature. After each round of games, we'd announce the points for each team. This team would check out the standings to see who was ahead and you can imagine the verbal enthusiasm displayed by our senior pastor each time it was announced they were in the lead. At the end of the game time when it was announced that they had the most points, the noise level and the self-congratulations by this pair was deafening. This continued until we read Matthew 10:31. The first will be last and the last first. And we declared that the team that had the most points would be last, and the team with the least points was the winner. Then we received some boos from this team pair, and Pastor Tracy even filed an official protest. I did have Pastor Tracy's permission to share this story, and we know it was all done in fun. But the point is that we do get caught up in winning, in being the best, and what the world sees as good and successful in the world's kingdom. There needs to be a good, healthy balance to this. And we always need to be reminded of what is important eternally, the kingdom of God. 
It's not who we are and what we accomplish that will get us into the kingdom. It is our faith and relationship with Jesus and therefore how we live out our faith, being humble and accepting Jesus and his life teachings that matter. Jesus moves us out of the world by teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rather focus on and love others. Instead of putting ourselves first, we should be putting the marginalized, the downtrodden, the loners, and the lowly first. This is exactly what Jesus did, which moves us to the next point, our second theme, Mark 10, and that is of serving. Starting in verse 35, James and John, just after hearing Jesus' talk about his death and resurrection, ask Jesus if they can sit at his sides when they enter his kingdom. They still don't get Jesus' purpose. Despite just hearing him talk about his death and resurrection and having been with him for about three years, the disciples still think Jesus is planning to set up a political kingdom, which they figure will happen when they get to Jerusalem. They want to sit on his right side, the seat of honor, and on his left, the place of the second seat of honor in this new kingdom. These are the two most prestigious places in Jesus' administration. But Jesus concludes his argument discussion with James and John by saying, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on the cross, to serve mankind by dying for them, for us. The disciples didn't get it, but neither always do we. Jesus is telling us that as Christians, we need to look at things differently. We need to think in terms of sacrificial service, not self-glory or self-accomplishment. Loving our neighbor is the walk of faith for those who want to follow him, not loving and serving only ourselves. Billy Graham wrote, the highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking out the lost and helpless. Note the connection on serving others to Jesus' comments to the rich young man. After the man tells Jesus he has kept all the commandments, Mark writes, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Although I think this comment was meant more to have the rich man reflect on what he needed to correct, it also says something about Jesus serving the marginalized and us too. Give to the poor. Serve others, not yourself. I like this quote from John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church. One of the principal rules of religion is to lose no occasion of serving God. And since he is invisible to our eyes, we are to serve him in our neighbor, which he receives as if done to himself in person, standing visibly before us. When we serve others, we also take our eyes off ourselves, thereby moving us away from human nature and that other worldly emphasis to win, to be the best, to focus on only all we can be. That attention, time, and love isn't put into 
loving and serving others, our neighbors, which includes strangers, co-workers, fellow students, our peers, friends, even and especially our family, our spouses, our children, our siblings, our parents. In Jesus' day, it was the unclean, the widows, the orphans, women and children who were marginalized. Today, culture and society has its own group of marginalized, the poor, those who look and or act differently from the majority, and the loners. So, for example, maybe instead of focusing on the being the best ball handler or scorer on a soccer team, you could go to the one who is struggling with soccer and teach them some skills or practice with them. We could spend time and energy with the ones who are marginalized, the loners and the outcasts. We could help them get a promotion. We could sit with them at a lunch table. We could walk and talk with them and introduce them to our friends. You could love and help your family members. Jesus is the ultimate servant and perfect example on doing this. We know that sin separates us from God, putting us outside of God's kingdom. It is God's love for us and his mercy and grace by Jesus' sacrifice of his life on the cross and taking all our sins upon himself that changes us. As Jesus declares in verse 45, which I'll read again, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The door is open for restoring us back into the kingdom. Whether that happens is up to us when we make that decision whether or not to follow Jesus. Jesus knows the rich young man is not going to be able to give up his riches and follow him. Yet we still read before Jesus asked the man to follow him that Jesus loved him. This brings us to the final point I want to look at in this overview of chapter 10. Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? I find it a very interesting question that Jesus poses this question not once, but twice. First, in verse 36, when responding to James and John's request to sit at his sides, and then again in verse 51, when blind Bartimaeus comes to him. The Son of God asking what he can do for them. This seems strange. Not only does Jesus know what they want, Jesus also knows what they need, which may be different from what they want and which also they may not even be aware of. But the Son of God still asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? Surely the Son of God has more important things to do for, for us, for them. The world is a big place. He's got a lot to take care of. But Jesus loves each one of us personally and our greatest need, of course, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus' Jesus's question, what do you want me to do for you, may be taken a couple of different ways. We know Jesus came to serve, so this question might be understood as, how can I help? There are times, particularly around the holidays, when Liz is working in the kitchen. I can tell she's overwhelmed, there's a lot going on, and I will ask, what do you want me to do? How can I help in this imminent situation and what concern are you dealing with right now? However, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God and he can do anything, 
I think his question, what do you want me to do for you, is more of a reflective question, one that delves into a greater life and spiritual implication. More like, do you know what you are asking and what you are really wanting me to do? Do you know that I love you and I want you to see that what I can really do for you? Jesus wants them to reflect on who he is and what they really need. He already knows our hearts and our desires. And in most cases, it is not really what we want done in our lives. In the case of James and John, they thought they needed power and prestige in a new kingdom. Jesus knew their desires and their hearts, but they didn't. Do James and John really want to sit on his side and drink the cup? Jesus will drink this cup and he will be baptized with death. Jesus will endure the cross and death. Jesus understood that they needed a deeper understanding of what the part of the kingdom, what being a part of their kingdom really meant. And he wants us to understand and reflect on these spiritual implications of these and the things that we do. Followers of Jesus are not to operate in the way that the world does. So in James and John's real life parable, he teaches them about serving and leading by sacrifice. And Jesus goes on to list the rewards for those who follow him in verses 29 to 30. What if Jesus were to ask us that question? What do you want me to do for you? What do we want Jesus to do for us? Do you want some sort of healing, either for you or someone you love? Do you want better job prospects? Do you want to pass your exams? Do you want a good school for your kids? Do you want more money? Do you want to be happy? There's nothing necessarily wrong with these wants or for asking for these in prayer, but Jesus desires us to reflect spiritually towards more of an eternal thinking in our answer and our response. This brings us back to one of the key portions of chapter 10, verses 32 and 34, the reason that Jesus is here. He went on to Jerusalem knowingly taking on a betrayal, a flogging, and being nailed to the cross so that we could be saved from our sins and to quote Jesus so we could have treasure in heaven. Often the answer to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you, is a much bigger question than we can understand, and we need to be open to that. The rich young man did not want to move from the worldly blessings to seek more spiritual blessings by following Jesus, but this is the most important question and answer that we can seek and we can look for. Tom Brady is the NFL's greatest all-time quarterback with six Super Bowl championships and accomplishments, that, and it ran a, a full page long in a, a recent article, or an article in um, in 2005, after his third Super Bowl victory, 60 Minutes did an interview with him. During that interview, Brady said, there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, but me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? The interviewer asked, what's the answer? Brady responded, I wish I knew. 
I wish I knew. Bartimaeus knew the answer to this question, and he took action. Turning to the end of Mark chapter 10, we read Jesus' last real-life parable and teaching before he enters Jerusalem. He comes across a blind man, Bartimaeus, who finds out Jesus is passing by. Bartimaeus has heard of Jesus, and even though he was blind, he recognized Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah. He was a sa- that Jesus was the Savior of Israel, and Bartimaeus asked for mercy towards him. Bartimaeus is one of the unclean, a blind beggar, but in his faith, he reaches out to the Messiah, asking him to notice him and to do something, to have mercy. Bartimaeus didn't have to do anything. He didn't recite all the laws he had followed from birth. In faith in what God could do, he reached out to Jesus and asked for mercy, even when others around him rebuked him and told him to be quiet. This reminds us of the beginning of Mark's chapter when the families were rebuked for bringing their children to Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate service servant, stops, cuts off his mission to Jerusalem and calls out to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus responds, Rabbi, I want to see. The word used by Bartimaeus, Rabboni, has a slightly stronger meaning than teacher, giving it a stronger sense of my Lord, my master. In this statement, Bartimaeus expresses his humble submission to Jesus. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And Bartimaeus receives his sight and he follows Jesus. Bartimaeus could have gone out and seen all the wonders of the world, but he knew none of that compared to what Jesus could give him. Along with a physical healing, in his answer to Jesus' question, Bartimaeus was also healed spiritually. He acknowledged and then followed Jesus, making him Lord and Savior. Chapter 10 is more than just stories of teaching and healing. It is a lesson on to whom belongs the kingdom of God. It is a teaching that doesn't make sense to the world. Jesus has a new teaching and a new understanding for us. The kingdom of God belongs to the humble and those who received Jesus and the good news of salvation like a child. It is not about the things we do or what we accomplish. It is understanding what Jesus did for us on the cross and accepting Jesus' mercy and grace like Bartimaeus. It's a story of how we should respond to Jesus. One of these ways is to serve others just as Jesus served us. And it's a story of our God who loves us and in his mercy and his grace asks us, what do you want me to do for you? Let us pray. Lord, your lessons are sometimes difficult for us to accept or understand, just as the rich man and the disciples showed. But you love us and call us to you. We praise you for your love and care and for what you did on the cross. Holy Spirit, help us to lift out the lessons we heard today, serving others as Jesus did, and spreading the good news you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.